Welcome to Breeder Syndicate. There he is. We are here. How you doing, bud? Fantastic. Let's just start rolling, man. All right. So uh, this is the first edition of our new thing. I don't know where we want to begin. I thought maybe this thing would be good to talk about, like some some seed bank history. Yeah. Uh, the you know, obviously, like now, uh, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of coming out of the woodwork where people are talking about a lot of famous old cuts from the 80s and 90s seed lines and all that. And I yep. thought maybe that like there was a bunch of people that didn't uh, maybe didn't know some of the history behind all how all that occurred. Uh, and so obviously, since it's weed history, it's not entirely exact, but this is everything we're going to talk about is the best that we know it. Right. Yeah. So, uh, there could be some different information. Not everything could be entirely correct, but we're going to give it our best shot to give you uh, what we think and what we know and all that, right? That is correct. So that's the word. So the reason why we wanted to start with um, like sort of Neville and sort of Holland history uh, is it's that's not where like seed history started, obviously. Like there was stuff going on in California. There was sacred. There was plenty of private breeders. but um, in Holland, that was sort of the first place where you could literally be a nobody and just send them money and get seeds, right? Yeah. Like kind of in California, at least from my knowledge and experience, you kind of had to know somebody, you kind of had to be connected a little bit. Um, you know, you had to be within certain circles. Uh, for instance, you know, I grew up in the Midwest and there was no access to seeds. There was no culture or anything like that. So the only places that we knew how to get weed were dead shows and Holland. Um, and so you could mail order from Holland. You could, uh, you could fly out there and buy them direct and kind of try to bring them back yourself. So to me, that's kind of where like modern weed history, as far as like most people's access to it begins. Yes. Right? If you were in certain circles, if you were in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, you know, obviously it starts before that, but, um, Neville put an ad in high times in 84 or so. And that started what Matt's holding up right now is his 85 catalog. Um, and because Holland's, because Holland's laws had changed, then they were sort of the first place that could like really make seeds available to everybody. Right. So as a result of that, like that's where a lot of people got most of their seed stock. Um, it wasn't from connections. It wasn't from friends that those were small groups. Uh, you know, Neville, uh, SSSC, um, you know, a couple other small places. They allowed everybody, people from Florida, people from Chicago, people from New York, people from North Carolina, Virginia, wherever to just, if they had the balls to go there, they had the balls to order it, they could get it. Right. And so that's where that's where kind of like our modern story starts. 
And that's where like a lot of, uh, a lot of seed strains and a lot of lines that became famous to everybody like haze, Northern lights, skunk one, G13, maple leaf, all these things we talk about now that have become kind of legendary. It's really where like 99% of the population really first started getting access to it. Right. Um, and so Neville is kind of unique in cannabis history in that he had the balls to start it. And he sort of got to, as, as you know, by the mid eighties persecution in California and America in general had really kind of ramped up. It was the Reagan years, uh, drug laws had gotten intense. And so a lot of, a lot of breeders and a lot of growers and a lot of guys with seed, they sort of took what they had and they fled, uh, to Amsterdam. Right. And so Amsterdam basically got famous because it was able to collect a lot of stuff that was going on in America not so much stuff that was, it had itself, but really stuff that was going on in America. Um, they did do some trips. It's certainly true that, uh, Neville, um, the drunkers from Sensi, other people, you know, some people went to Afghanistan. There was shit that they called obviously the hippie hashish trail where people started going to the far East and poking around looking for seed stock and stuff. And, uh, but, Holland is really where it consolidated, like Matt's holding it up right now. If you look on the left page that he has up, there's like an order form, right? And you could literally write down what amount you wanted of what strains, and you could send them fucking money, and they would send you seeds. And uh, that was pretty revolutionary, I think, because that had never yeah. happened before. You couldn't just ask a stranger for a bunch of, a bunch of illegal marijuana beans and get a hold of them back then. Right. And so we thought maybe it would be good to start like on a historical basis because most of the stuff that we grow today in some way, there's a lot, you could trace a lot of it back to that first five or 10 years in Amsterdam, say like 85 to 95. Right. Yeah. I think Matt would agree um, that the vast majority of today's modern cannabis, you can at least tie some of it back to that era. Most of it. Definitely. Yeah, you know, and so Neville did two things, right? Neville had the balls to start. And then secondly, he was kind of able to collect a bunch of people's previous work. Um, like, for instance, Mel Frank, uh, Jim Ortega, uh, Seattle Greg from the NL crew, um, Mel, you know, uh, Sam Skunkman, various groups like that, and then his own travels. And so he kind of became the first person to be able to blend all those things together. Like before him, nobody was crossing skunk in Northern Lights because the skunk crew and the Northern Lights crew didn't know each other. Nobody was crossing NL5, you know, with Hayes because those, that crew didn't know each other. Yeah. So in a way, he got lucky. because I mean, like imagine today, for instance, you could collect, nobody knew about Kush. Nobody knew about cookies. Nobody knew about sour. Nobody knew about all these things that are famous in America. And imagine you got to be the person that blended them together first and then sold and then resold them to people. So like, that's kind of like what, um, that's kind of what Neville got to do in a sense, right? Is yeah. he got to be first, you know, and a bunch of people copied him and a bunch of people came along and added their own thing. And, Obviously, like just like every other breeder, nobody started shit, right? 
everybody's right. on the shoulders of who came before him. So you all pick up, you know, the breeding projects and the clones and the seeds as you get into weed, as you come around. And then, you know, you kind of add your own kick to it. And that's what every breeder has done, you know, from the beginning. Um, in some cases, the first breeders in, say, like America, uh, were taking all the import weed, like the Colombian and the Panamanian and the Thai and the Mexican and all that. And all that stuff came in uh, from seed, you know, seeded weed. So literally every time you bought weed, you got free seeds. Um, and so most, most breeding in America was a bunch of sativas, right? Because that's all there was, was sativas. Like if you got hash, hash was Afghans, but you didn't find any seeds for the most part in hash. I think right? this, this, this is a really super important part too, because most people that are around today don't realize that the, the influx of modern Afghanis and stuff happened more in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, as opposed to have always been existing and always a part of the culture. Yeah, it, it, it changed. I mean, most, I would say, for instance, that like most, most things that people were growing in the 70s was a blend of sativas. Yeah. Because that's what, that's what everybody had access to, right? So, you know, it'd be Mexican Colombians, it'd be Mexican Colombians and ties, it'd be all these type of things. And Afghans were super fucking rare, like really rare, um, because somebody had to go to Afghanistan or Pakistan or one of those regions, get seeds, and they had to go in the 60s and 70s when travel took a long time, right? They had to go, they had to collect them, and they had to smuggle them back into America, either mailing them or on their person somehow, right? So, but there was li literal tons and tons and tons of Mexican and Colombian and Thai and Panamanian and all these different Jamaican that was coming in, in, you know, in bricks and stuff to America, and it was all seeded. So, you know, uh, that was kind of like the, and so as a result of that, most American breeding was like, in core groups, right? It was just little groups of people, friend groups, extended friend groups, that type of thing, you know? Uh, and, you know, so that's kind of how it started. And it really, I mean, it really wasn't until Holland that most of America got access to like a, what a lot of little groups of people were up to doing, you know? Um, obviously like prohibition was pretty heavy, so, you know, you just, there was no way for you to know what, what Seattle Greg and the NL crew was doing in the Pacific Northwest. They were trying to avoid getting busted. Yeah. Um, and they were, they, and Greg's commented several times that it was just like watching dominoes fall constantly watching their friends. It, pop. it was sketchy. And so as a result of it being sketchy and you trying to be underground, right. That meant that most people didn't have access to what you were doing because they didn't want most people to know what they were doing. They had to hide it in order to be successful. You know, there was, there was, you know, some stuff going on in Mendocino County and Humboldt County and, you know, Santa Cruz and the central coast area that was mountainous. Um, and, you know, people were getting away with pretty good sized things and breeding and stuff. But unless you were connected to those crews, if you lived in Nebraska, if you lived in Florida, if you lived in, you know, Chicago, like where I was born or anything like that, you had zero access to those people. You had no idea whatsoever what was going on. You just had, you know, if you were lucky, you got some imports. So the reason why we thought uh, starting with Neville and starting with the seed banks is because 
Neville was really, Neville was probably one of the biggest reasons why we're all here. Uh, he sold between, he had, when he started the seed bank, um, you know, he sold millions of dollars worth of seed. Millions of dollars. Millions. Yeah. All over America. All over. And so what he did is he gave thousands and thousands and thousands of people the ability to grow their own and the ability to get some of the best American genetics that were happening that people didn't have access to before. Um, so, you know, in a way, um, you know, he kind of took a lot of very famous weed characters and he made their stuff famous, you know, is really kind of what happened. He made it famous. Yeah, that's, he made some rock stars, you know, so I was talking about it before. And if anybody was listening to like, uh, you know, the first breeder syndicate, uh, interview, uh, Matt, Matt and Kanza got to interview, um, uh, Seattle Greg. And one of the things that Seattle Greg said in that interview was that, you know, he sent uh, Neville a whole bunch of NL seed because he saw that advertisement that Neville put in that in high times. Uh, he literally, you know, reached out to Neville and, um, you know, he sent Neville Northern Lights. Um, and, you know, within five or six years of that time, uh, everybody in the Northern Light crew has gotten busted. Um, and it would have been lost to time and nobody would have known anything about it other than some legends. Um, but he had gotten it to Holland before they all got busted and lost it. Right. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a thing when people are asking questions, I haven't gotten to the questions yet because I just been kind of rapping about stuff, but there's, there's a button where you can, people can go and they can ask questions and we'll try to get some of those questions answered a little bit later after we roll through some of this shit. Um, and so, you know, um, I'm, I'm in my mid forties. So, you know, literally, like I said before, I knew how to get seeds. I knew how to get good weed from grateful dead shows and Holland. And, uh, I went to Holland in 1994 and, uh, you know, I was able just to, as an 18 year old, nobody to just walk into various places and buy seed stock. You know, I didn't know anything about, I knew barely anything about growing weed. I literally got my first seeds that I had access to because I could buy a plane ticket and I could fly to Amsterdam as a kid and I could buy seeds and I could bring them back to my spot and we could pop them and uh, we could see what's up. Was it still super expensive for the time? Like, uh, you know, like modern times comparatively, how, how were the seed prices back then when you first flew over? Did you have to save forever or? So the funny part about it is, is that um, seed prices, like when you look in those old catalogs, yeah, like, check it out. In all honesty, you know, you see a lot of stuff for fifty bucks, eighty bucks, one hundred and fifty bucks, two hundred bucks, whatever. You have to realize the way money works right now. Um, like I'll just give you guys for an example of inflation. In nineteen ninety four, when I turned eighteen, twenty dollars back then would be worth thirty eight dollars today. So seed prices have stayed amazingly stable over the decades. They really have. Um, yeah. They really haven't jumped because if you think about it, most if you were selling seeds at what Neville was selling seeds for, most seed packs should be between two to four hundred dollars. Yeah. You know? Um just just even to equate how much actual money Neville was getting for selling those seeds. Right? 
And so, you know, they've stayed pretty stable. I mean, obviously there's some, there's cookies. Uh, there's some, uh, when Skittles came out, there's some people that really profited off people's availability. Um, and, uh, you know, they've charged, you know, 500, 800, a thousand dollars a pack for certain beans, but, um, you know, seed prices for most things, like if you buy stuff from CSI or you buy stuff from, uh, Riot or you, you know, other good breeders that, uh, you know, we like, like Shaw and different people, um, they're amazingly competitively priced, uh, you know, to today. So, um, that's kind of like the, that was kind of a long winded way to basically say this hour or some chin change or however long we decide to shoot the shit is basically about like maybe giving some people some information about how Neville got started and how he collected things and then how he started blending things and then how those things sort of became like <clears throat> the bedrock of modern cannabis. Right. Yeah. Um, because he's the guy that really took it from very few hands, relatively speaking, um, to crowdsourcing it, if you will, to use a modern term, where all of a sudden a ton of people had access to it. Right. And I don't think that would have happened um, without Neville and some others and Holland and all that. So um, maybe that's sort of the, uh, that's sort of the beginning you know, um, and we can kind of walk it through. So Matt right now is holding up the first actual real seed catalog, which has a bunch of cool pictures of Neville's Afghanistan trip. Um, you know, he's holding a bunch of hashish. He's hanging out with people in the tribal regions of Afghanistan. And, um, you know, so basically when, when Neville first started, uh, he didn't know shit of what he had, right? There it is. Yeah, he really didn't. He didn't know anything that he had. He was just collecting stuff from people, right? And he was starting to blend those things. And I would say it probably took him about three years or so of fucking around. Um, 85, 84, 85, 86, going into 87, before yep. he really started to figure out like what he had and favorites of what he had. And then kind of like 88, 89, 90, um, that's really when like the blend started happening that ever, that got made really famous. Like if you look in, um, if Which you look one? in the book, the, the very first book, okay. um, you know, in the Northern lights, Greg and those guys sent him like Northern lights labeled one through eight, but he, you weren't able to buy NL one from him. You couldn't buy NL two. You couldn't buy NL anything. You bought a random assortment of NL that he had because he hadn't had time to like, you know, he inbred those things line by line, but it took him a few years to really figure out what he had or then grow rooms of the stuff and even see what was in there. You got to realize too, that like to him, these are just names that are coming in from these different growers. Um, you know, we have a lot of knowledge about what these things are supposed to be now, but he didn't have any. So in the first couple of years, there was a bunch of, there was a bunch of stuff in there that's weird, uh, in, for lack of a better term, you know, there's random yeah. Nepalese by skunks, you know, Colombians by this African by two. Yeah. You know, there, there was just a bunch of stuff because he was sort of reselling, uh, everything 
you know, everything that he had. And he didn't really have, uh, he didn't really have a way to differentiate yet, you know? So he was just experimenting. So you'll see a lot of weird things in there. Like there's a page, um, you know, he, yeah, he's got some, some tie by, uh, by, uh, Afghani, you know, New he Mexico, had, Afghani. No yeah. He had, he had stuff that you'd never see again, like skunk one by, by NL nine, I think, or NL eight. Um, he had Mazar Mazari that he got from his travels to Afghanistan. He had Nepalese, um, Alice. It was kind of just a grab bag in the beginning of just whatever, whatever, you know, he was kind of collecting from all these different breeders. Right. And, um, so, uh, you know, they, um, you know, and the, you know, and and also just to go back for a second, just to give people an idea. So he was collecting all that. Uh, Greg, Greg, uh, Seattle, Greg sent him, uh, I believe, NL one through eight, uh, according to Neville um, and Greg, and uh, you know, who people, David Watson, who people call Sam the Skunk Man. He had gotten in trouble a couple of times, and so he took a bunch of seed stock from himself. Uh, and then some, from some other breeders and he brought that to Holland and he ended up selling it to, uh, Neville, uh, he ended up selling it to, uh, the owner of Positronics, um, Bernard? Huh? Bernard? Bernard, yes. Positron, the owner of Positronics, Bernard, yep. um, he ended up just basically, you know, he had a couple kids or whatever. He was kind of brokish. Um, and he ended up going out there and he gave Neville skunk one and Hayes from himself. And then he was friends with Mel Frank and Mel Frank had given him Afghani one and Durban poison. Um, and then another breeder in the Bay who we don't know his name had given, um, some, some other Afghans and stuff like that. And so 85, 86 Neville was basically just reselling, a bunch of stuff that he was collecting, a bunch of different breeders that he had gotten. That's kind of the beginning. Well, that's um, let's, let's let's start going over some of the baselines that came out of the, the seed bank era. Some of the baselines that we see in a lot of modern cannabis lines today. All right. So maybe we'll start uh, maybe we'll start with uh, something simple like Northern Mites. Yeah. So like I said, if you look in the 85 catalog and you look in the 86 catalog, not sure, maybe even the 87, but my memory fails me slightly. I think you really can just buy Northern Lights. Yeah, this one says Cannabis Indica Northern Lights in the 86, and in 87, it just says Cannabis Indica Northern Lights as well. Just says Northern Lights. So he got it in 80, he placed that ad in 84. He got the seeds sometime in 84. It's not, we're not exactly sure when. And yeah. He kept, he started growing them out and he started keeping the lines separate and interbreeding them, right? And so if you Correct. guys listened to the podcast with Greg McAllister, uh, Seattle Greg, as we like to call him, and, um, you know, he basically said that, like, you know, the NL1 and the NL2 and the NL3, um, those were all pretty predominantly Afghan. They were rated by height and length of flowering time. And then most of the other, most of the other NLs, were those couple Afghans, either one or two, blended with basically every sativa they could get their hands on. Hawaiians, um, 
you know, uh, Colombians, Thais, Mexicans. So it was really a hodgepodge. And Greg has mentioned that they were really scared to keep notes. Uh, and they were really scared to like lay out exactly what they were doing. So a lot of those lines are kind of lost to time in terms of what their exact makeup is, uh, because those guys didn't even want to keep track. They were just trying to find good weed, right? So yeah. some of them is a mystery, but if you look in those first few catalogs, like I said before, you can find, you know, uh, skunk one by NL NL nine. You can find, um, you know, five by eight, if you will, uh, you can find a bunch of different things. And he started reading them together and combining them, you know, in various, in various different ways. And even in the beginning, right? Like, um, everybody's familiar. Most people are familiar with what he ended up using, which is one of the things that became pretty famous, which is NL five by NL two. Um, but the first year he offered it, he reversed it. And he, and he, and it was NL2 by NL5 uh, because he hadn't really decided yet on like what, you know, what worked for him. So after a few years of, of fucking around with NL, he basically realized that um, NL1 bred pretty true to itself. It was pretty close to what we call Steve Murphy Afghan, uh, which is basically the Afghani that sort of got the NL. Uh, line on its way. He got these Afghan seeds from this guy named Steve Murphy, uh, who wrote a couple cannabis books in the mid seventies. And this was sort of a wide leafed, short squat, kind of bubble like, um, lowland Afghan, leafy, frosty, resinous, short, uh, quick flowering, thick, dense, that type of thing. And then the NL two was, um, you know, more of a cush type. It had thinner leaves. Uh, one thing that people should know is like Af Afghanistan has an enormous amount of height variation depending on where you grow. So some of the stuff like the Mazars and some of the regions might only be like one or 2000 feet above sea level. But then when you get up into like the Hindu Kush region, the Hindu Kush region is the second highest mountain range next to the Himalayas. And a bunch of those Afghan farmers were growing at like 6,000, 8,000 feet, these big, tall valleys in the middle of nowhere. And so those leaves were kind of much skinnier, much thinner. Um, think about like everybody's pretty familiar probably with like the way that like what modern Kush looks like. And it's like that skinny three leaf, um, you know, with different nugs. Um, where like the lowland Afghans were sort of like thick, feathery, um, denser, looser, more, more leafy nugs like Matt's holding up in the picture right there. Right. Yep. So I think it's 89. Is it 89? The first catalog, Matt, where all of a sudden he had figured out which NLs really worked for him, which ones were stable, which ones gave him good breeding work. And after yeah. getting those NLs, all the NLs pretty much disappeared, okay, from Neville's catalogs, except for he offered NL1 F3, he offered NL2 F3, okay, um, and then he found, he grew up a bunch of five, and since five is so famous, maybe we'll chat about that. There's this dude named yeah. Kirby who, uh, 
um, who took uh, Steve Murphy's Afghan and he crossed that to a Hawaiian, which he said was a Colombian by Mexican, right? And, um, you know, and he gave that to Greg. And Greg sent that seed line out as one of the one through eight. Well, never, Neville grew a bunch of that out. And obviously, if you're growing a bunch of Afghan by Colombian by Mexican, you're going to get a bunch of uh, a variety and chaos, okay? So he found this one. Maybe if you want to show that one NL5 pick again. Yeah, let me find it. So within the, first, within the first few years, he grew, up a bunch, he grew up a bunch of this NL5, and most of it was a chaotic mess. Uh, Af Afghani sativa blend all over the place. But that picture that you guys are seeing on the left, he found this one, he called it like a throwback plant, right? And he found this one plant that was almost pure Afghan, super frosty, super resinous, didn't taste like much, super low terps, um, but it, uh, it had great structure, it had a great buzz, and uh, he loved it. And so I think by 88, 89, 90, the only thing that Neville was really breeding with was you could buy NL1, you could buy NL2, and he had one cut that Matt just showed of the NL5, right? Yeah. You got to realize for a second that in America, right, they didn't have Neville's NL5 cut. They sent Neville a cut of their favorite, but theirs was a hybrid. Theirs was that blend. It was an F1 hybrid of Steve Murphy Afghan by Colombian and Mexican, right? That's and correct. So, and so, you know, there was, there's a lot of confusion about NL5. And we have this thing that we call pre-pre, <laughs> where <laughs> a lot of people like to, like to talk about how they have seeds or they have cuts, like from the earliest possible time that you could have the cut. But people need to, people need to understand that there was always, um, there was a North American cut of NL5 that was an Afghani hybrid of, with sativa. And there was a cut that Neville found amongst the seed line that is that picture right there that looks super Afghan and super frosty, right? And so um, by 88, 89, almost all the NL you're going to get is he used NL1 and NL2 as males. And NL5 was always the, the, the female. And that was pretty much it. After three, four years of breeding with NL, he had decided that most of the sativa, most of the hybrids that were with sativa that Greg had sent were a fucking mess and hard to breed with and didn't breed consistently, right? And you got to realize, too, that back then during the high prohibition times, people wanted consistent producers. Yeah, you know, that's important. He, he used to joke that if he gave you some kind of white hot fire, but it yielded 10% less, you'd be pissed. Yeah. Right. And so most, he found that like most pure Afghans didn't cross very well together. Um, they liked being crossed with, that was one of the, he was one of the first people that really realized that when you start crossing things, you start getting really neat stuff when you start crossing things that are totally unrelated to one. Uh, so people should realize there never was an NL5 line that was ever released pure. That's super important as well, because we see that all the time. People popping up with NL5 saying they have the NL5 cut or NL5 seeds. So 
you know, the, the NL5 cut that was made famous because people were buying millions of dollars worth of hybrids of it, really, that was in Europe, you know? And, you know, Greg has stated that by the late 80s, they had all gotten busted and lost all their shit, right? And they didn't really share very much. Greg told us that they had shared the eight, a cut of the eight, a cut of the nine, and with a few friends, they had shared the five cut. But that wasn't the super Afghani five cut that Neville shows in those pictures. That was the F1 hybrid that was Colombian, Mexican, and Afghan, right? So um, everything that Neville sold was an NL5 hybrid. He had NL5 by NL2. He had NL5 by uh, Skunk 1. He had NL5 by Hayes. Uh, can you think of any more, Matt? Um, uh, as far as NL5 crosses? Mm-hmm. NL5 Hayes, NL5 by 2. I think that's... I, what was the other one? NL5. NL5 one. Those yeah. are probably the three most common, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, a lot of people are talking about having pure NL5. Well, that'd be really fucking hard. Uh, Real hard. Because Greg says that they lost it all by the late 80s. And then Neville never sold pure NL5. Uh, and, and by pure, uh, to be clear, he grew out a lot of the seeds that Greg sent him. And most of the NL5 line was a mess. And he found this one Afghani plant he liked a lot. And that's the one he used. So, uh, you know, you see a lot of stuff. You know, I see some comments, you know, uh, talking about Bodhi stuff and all that. And it's tough because I'm not here to, like, you know, call anybody out or anything like that. Or obviously there's a lot of people making a lot of claims. Um, but, you know that's part of the issue and that's part of the reason why we wanted to do these podcasts and these talks is because most of the history is oral, right? Uh, it's not written down very well. Um, even the people that were there disagree exactly on what happened. Yeah. Somebody, right. There's some consensus, but there's also, uh, there's also some disagreement and some of these old timers, they don't like each other. They yeah. Just flat out. <laughs> And they have beefs and they have disagree. I mean, it's not very different than today, right? There's breeders today that don't like each other and they have beefs what? with each other. And, what? You know, <laughs> 20 years from now, there'll be legends about both, right? And they'll be like, oh, I thought Matt Riot was a piece of shit. He's a fucking this and that. I don't believe him at all. And then there'll be yep. other people who will be like, well, Matt Riot's story was consistent. And this other guy's story wasn't consistent. And most people aren't there, right? And yeah. so... What we're trying to do with this is just kind of lay out some like basic facts, right? And uh, yeah, I and mean, I can actually comment on the Bodhi uh, NL5 thing because I was, we were talking during that time a lot. You know, we're, we've been close friends for a long time. And, and his goal with the NL5, knowing he knew that NL5 was never released pure as a seed line. However, we were trying to find something closest that we could find. And he was like, he was trying to find it. And, and consulting all his friends, too, saying, hey, where, where do you think the best NL5 seed line would be that would show the best representation? And at the time, there was like Dr. Atomic's Northern Lights, um, which was a supposed claimant to the NL5, you know, uh, lineage. And then there was BC Seeds, which was the more popular one that had had been around probably 
accepted as as closer to Northern Lights than most that was available at the time. So that's what he went with. And and I, I agree, it was probably one of the better options at the time. But as far as a, a pure NL5 seed line, when you break it down, it's that's really hard to find. Because it never, because the only people that had it, you know, and by pure, let's be clear, the initial NL5 seed line was an unstabilized polyhybrid. Yes. It was a mixture of Mexican, Colombian, and, and Afghani, right? It was never stabilized. It was never pure. It never bred, it never bred true, right? It was a full-on polyhybrid. Oh, and that's right. Squirrel mentioned the NL5 skunk one. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. NL5 skunk. I, I mentioned, I think Neville mm-hmm. sold NL5 by two, NL5 by skunk one, yeah. NL5 by haze. Um, and so, but NL was always the, NL was always the mother plant. Yeah. I'm sure most people know this, but I'll say it anyway, just in case, is that the way we talk about seeds is the mother should always come first. And the father should always come second. Correct. You talk about five by two, he's using the mother of NL5 and a dad of NL2. Right? Uh, some people get it flipped around, and that's hella confusing because it is important to know what's the mom and what's the dad. It really helps to have consistent terminology when you're chatting about seeds. Um, what about the noof cut? So, you know, there's things where it's like, I can't. You know, when we're talking about kind of seed history and stuff like that, this is all stuff that's going on in the 80s and the early 90s. Um, and then, you know, these these things get legendary status and then they pop up in different generations and by different people and different seed companies in Holland, different seed companies in later in Canada. They start uh, they start popping out and. um I can answer that one actually real quick. Yeah. So uh, there's, there's somebody asking a question about NL5 seed from Todd. Uh, we know quite a bit about that. Uh, the basic story is that Greg says, okay, that he found that, that, that they found some seed from him that he didn't know existed for decades uh, after his sister had sadly passed away. In her fridge, in her freezer. In her freezer. And he gave some of those to Todd. Uh, Matt got some of those as well. Um, and um, so those, you know, it's it's hard to say. Uh, you know, Greg admitted that uh, Greg admitted that he lost everything for decades, and then he finds some seeds in his sister in his deceased sister's uh, fridge uh, that were labeled. And so, at best, you can say that the provenance of them is uncertain. For sure. Um, you know, it's just uncertain. There's just no way to tell. If it is an L5, then it would be Steve Murphy Afghan by Mexican Colombian. Which which originally Greg referred to as a, a Hawaiian, but later on he said what the Hawaiian was that, that was actually over there. It's a Hawaiian, but, you know, I mean, obviously Hawaii doesn't have any native exactly. weed. So most Hawaiian... <laughs> was sativas from other traditional regions brought to Hawaii and grown. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so how did BC seed company obtain NL five? So this is kind of jumping around for a minute, but let's be clear. Uh, most of the seed companies in Amsterdam, 
once they realized how profitable this seed shit was, they would buy seed from whoever had the seed in Holland, rename it and resell it. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, a company bought Neville's NL2 F3 and they renamed it Oasis. Yeah. Uh, which That's company is that, Matt? Remind me. Uh, Dutch Passion. Dutch Passion. So Dutch Passion, you know, uh, when this is jumping ahead a lot, but, you know, within a year of Shanti releasing White Widow or other things, there was two or three other competing seed companies in Holland selling White Widow. And they would just take this, they would just lift the exact lineage from the people that's, that first sold the seed. They'd buy five or 10 or 20 or however many packs of seed from that person, grow them out, take a male and a female and start making and packaging their own seed line because it was money. And then they get the out, right? Seeds have always been shady. And everybody involved in seeds has always been shady. And it's already always been underground. And it, uh, you know, it's always been somewhat persecuted. And so, you know, a lot of the characters, to be perfectly honest, lie. And it's hard to tell what they lie about. You know? Um, yeah, I mean, the provenance of, of a breeder is only as good as what they can prove, you know, and a lot of people don't demand that proof. They don't know to demand that proof or, or have it even researched to demand. Well, said yeah, well, well I, I saw something. We'll get to some questions here and just we'll go through like a little question and answer session, um, you know, shortly here or whatever. And we're not we won't get through it all today, but I just kind of like you guys can see. I mean, I haven't even gotten I haven't even talked yet about the most famous hybrid of all time, which is NL5 Hayes. Uh, but there's a lot of depth to these stories on how these people got started. Um, and, you know, and then other people should also know that like, you know, um, some of these later seed companies, uh, a lot of these people worked for Neville, right? Yeah. Uh, Adam, who was part of starting THC seeds, Tony, who was first at Cerebral and then made his own Sagmartha seeds, Simon, who was also at Cerebral and then made serious seeds. Uh, they all work <laughs> right? All of them. And then within a year of leaving working for Neville or leaving working for Sensi under Neville, to be more accurate, they all had their own seed companies. So it's highly likely that at the very least, they took some stock, uh, some mother plants, some fathers, some whatever from their previous job and renamed stuff. Uh, I mean, that's the game, right? But maybe I should take a step back. I'll talk for a few more minutes and then we can answer some questions and then we yeah, can let's get do that. But the other part that's cool is that one of the things that Neville did that other people didn't is that he actually went to America on some speed and clone hunts. And uh, there's a dude who has written, most people probably know exactly who this is. Uh, he's one of the people through his books that taught me how to grow weed. There's this dude named Jorge Cervantes and uh, Neville met up with Jorge Cervantes on one of his trips back into America. And um, Jorge got, had new breeders. Uh, maybe breeders is the wrong word. They knew growers at the very least. They knew growers in the Pacific Northwest region. And Jorge hooked him up with the G13 cut. And what, what became known as the Pacific Northwest hash plant. 
That's okay. right. Um, and, and so certain people gave Neville a bunch of seed lines, but then there was things like the Pacific Northwest hash plant, the G13, um, you know, stuff like that, that ended up just being straight cuts that he purchased. Uh, and, um, you know, yeah, George wasn't somebody, he used to go by a different pen name, um, back in the day. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he, he hooked up Neville with those two cuts. And really all we know is that Neville paid $500 for the G13 cut and it came out of Oregon. And he, I don't know how much he paid for the Pacific Northwest hash plant, um, Not sure. but he paid for that. And he sent both those things back as cuts. Right. So, um, you know, he kind of collected over the first five or six years he was in business through some travels uh, to Afghanistan from meeting up with American breeders uh, to going to to going to America and buying cuts and seed lines. We haven't talked about that, but there was this uh, very mysterious character named Jim Ortega that gave him seed lines that became super famous, the garlic bud, the Hawaiian indica, the, um, the maple leaf indica, um, and uh, uh, the Kush 4. Uh, you know, and those ended up, a number of those ended up in a bunch of Neville projects. Um, so Neville kind of like, Neville kind of like was able to, in that five-year period, you know, or six-year period, really, 84 to 90, he was constantly collecting stuff from breeders, collecting stuff from people, blending it together, releasing stuff, playing around with stuff, and seeing what the hell it was is kind of how it got started, in a sense. Uh, you want to add any of that shit, Matt? Um, actually, I, this, this is harkening back to people are asking about the BCC company and their sourcing. I actually found something in reference to just that real quickly. Um, this is the Dr. Atomic one. So it's going to be the Hemp BC Seed Bank, I believe. And they don't really give an exact um, anything on how they sourced it, but it does say uh, this state-of-the-art indica is a result over 20 years of selected inbreeding. They pretty much took Neville's uh, description. The buds have extremely frosted. Then they actually sold an NL5 Hawaiian indica, NL5 haze one, Hawaiian haze, but again, it didn't see anything about the sourcing of their NL5 and they couldn't have possibly been around for it. So that's a lot to digest and it kind of gives you like a super general overview of like what, what Neville was up to and, you know, some of the people he was collecting from and some of the things that he got. Um, maybe we'll pause for a second and we'll hop over to the votes. Uh, yeah. And people are, and I'll, we'll answer some questions. Here, I'll uh, read them off to you so you don't have to read them. No, I got them in front of me. It's pretty easy. Okay. Uh, this app that I downloaded works pretty well. Awesome. So, the first question that got a bunch of votes is uh, getting CSI on here. Um, CSI is, I could probably safely say, he's a good friend of both mine and Matt's. Um, yeah. We both uh, chat with him uh, fairly often. Um, you know, he, uh, we're, we're all good friends. Uh, it's certainly possible that we could convince him to come on one of these in the future. Um, he's not he's quite, as, he's not quite as talkative as Matt and I am. And he's a little, shy. <laughs> uh, 
but he has done it in the past, and it is entirely possible that we could get him to do it. Uh, he's a wealth of knowledge. Um, people call him Inspecta for a reason. Uh, he's got a really curious mind. He pokes and pokes and pokes and tries to figure out knowledge, kind of like uh, the rest of us. Everything I just said um, that I rambled on about for forever, uh, it, that's, it's the result literally of years of talking to people, uh, yeah. years of researching, years of, you know, uh, Matt got to talk to Neville quite a bit in 09, uh, 10, 12 years ago. Um, or so got a bunch of emails and various kinds of communication. Uh, there was a couple of year period on, uh, Mr. Nice forums, which is Shanti Baba's site where Neville was actively posting and answering a bunch of people's questions. Uh, there's friends of his that have contributed. Uh, there's enemies of his that have, uh, their own various stories and stuff. And so, um, all this stuff, is not easy to find. It's not in any one location. It's all sort of a, a conglomeration of, uh, you know, just a lot of, a lot of work. He cares about history. He cares about, um, knowledge. Uh, he cares about the oral history. I can't say when, but we can try to get uh, homie on here and see if he wants to chat about various things. The next question is, we have, like I said before, we have no idea who passed the Pacific Northwest hash plant to Melbourne. Yeah, that's right. Jorge did arrange that, that exchange for the PNW hash plant, right? Um, so it's not public knowledge who gave it to him. We just know it came out of the Oregon, Washington state area. Uh, there was growers that, that Jorge knew that he was able to hook up with Neville and Neville bought them from them. Um, so uh, their names are not known to my knowledge. Uh, whoever they were. And uh, the Maui cut that I have. So the, the third, that question and the next question, what seeds that I buy in 94? Did I find anything decent? And the Maui cut are both related. So I was dumb and I was 18. And in retrospect, I went there and I bought a ton of seed. But sadly, I only bought one or two packs of like, 15 different things um, and not realizing at the time that I would have been better off buying say two or three or four things like five or six or seven packs of each, like 20 or 30 or 40 females of each one. Instead, you know, I bought a bunch of random shit. I bought stuff from Sensi. Uh, I bought some stuff from, um, I'm trying to think now uh, the, the, the easiest way to put it is, uh, I didn't find anything that was worthwhile on that trip, except for I was at the gray area coffee shop and I was smoking a joint and we were young and this old timer was sitting down next to us. And I mean, old timer in the sense he probably looks something like me right now in his mid forties, a little, little gray, whatever. And uh, we were smoking and we were young and we were all 18. I was there with some friends of mine. We were like all 18 to 20 or whatever. And we were all hippies, deadheads, this mission to buy seeds and smuggle them back so we could grow. I had a two-lighter uh, at the time, so really major, major player. <laughs> and uh, I was sitting down next to him, this, this old guy smoking weed, and we were telling him our story. And he told me that he was from Hawaii, and he'd lived there since the mid-70s. 
And every few years he came out and traded seeds with some of these guys in Holland um, and brought them back and tried them in Hawaii on Maui. And it wasn't a very long conversation. We drank a cappuccino. I didn't ask him that many questions. We smoked a couple joints together and a little hash or whatever. And then at the end of it, he was like, well, I'm super stoked. You kids are out here trying to find some weed. And he's like, why don't you take, why don't you try a little bit of what I do? And he put a handful of seeds in my, um, and one of those became the Maui cut. Uh, I stupidly didn't make any seeds. Uh, that era, I wasn't even attempting to breed yet. I was just trying to find a good female to fill my two lighter. So, uh, I didn't ask him any intelligent questions about it. And so I call it the Maui because that's the island it came from. And that's the only thing I know about it. So it's gorgeous though. Yeah. So really, uh, the first time I went to Amsterdam, I went to Amsterdam probably two or three times between 94 and 03, probably two or three times a year. I went to like three cannabis cups in that time. Um, and I would go, mostly I would go in summer. Um, but I would go, I'd try to go a couple times a year and buy different seeds, talk to breeders, talk to various people, learn as much as I could. you got to realize back then there was no forums. Everything was just in books. Information was pretty hard to come by. Um, you know, information was rudimentary, really. Uh, the, the way the information flows now, I wish that I could have listened to somebody like this to shoot the shit about weed. Uh, but it was pretty hard to come across. So. Um, the only thing I found on my 94 trip that I kept was a gift. Everything I bought was, uh, I don't want to say it was bunk, uh, but my 18, my 18 year old uh, knowledge, I didn't keep any of it. So um, I still have that cut. It's still grown in Mendocino County by others. It's a great outdoor plant. It has a bunch might of cool be in plants. some popular strains that are around nowadays. It is definitely in some popular strains. And uh, that cut is 27 years old this year. That's so uh, wild. So it's, uh, it's certainly my longest held cut. I've had it my entire adult life. Uh, it uh, paid a lot of bills. I brought it with me when I moved from Chicago to Mendocino County in 1998. I spread it out a little bit there. Um, and it's, uh, it's been in a number of different things. Um, I bred with it quite a bit. Um, you know, I gave some hybrids that I had made uh, of Superdog, which is another story that we've talked about before. But Superdog by Maui, I gave a bunch of that to Mandelbrot. Mandelbrot uh, found a pheno in that that he called the Truth, uh, and then he bred with it in some of his own lines and stuff. And so um, she exists in various. She still exists pure with me and some friends, but she also exists in some other people's work. Um, she might exist in some pretty famous things at this particular time. Um, but that's kind of how cannabis is, you know? Um, so there's a couple more questions I could answer sure. for sure. Our friend, uh, Flanville, he said, what's my personal favorite clone or line to come from Neville's work? Ooh. Um, you know, the line is easy. Uh, yeah. I, I personally think the most famous uh, hybrid ever made and the most successful cannabis hybrid that's ever been sold is Northern Lights 5 by Hayes. I don't think there's another, there's another line that's more famous. Um, if you're looking at um, 
at the catalogs right there, right out there on top in the 1990 catalog. That's Boom. That picture of NL5 Haze. Do we know which one it was? Eight, it's A2. It's A5. A52? A52. Yep. There it is. Uh, that's the mother of Neville's Haze. That picture right there, that's the mother of Neville's Haze. Um, that cut is still alive. Uh, it's both in Europe and it's floating around with a select few people in America. It was found in 89 or something like that. So it's super old. Um, and look at all that leaf resin. Damn. But yeah, basically, um, <laughs> you know, he got, you know, it's, it's kind of long, but he got haze from uh, Sam, Dave, Dave Watson's Sam Skunk Man. And he ended up crossing it with some of his Indicas, um, maple leaf Indica. Uh, called that Silver Haze. He crossed it with G13. And you had G13 Haze. He crossed it with NL5. That became... And the NL5, uh, I actually don't think there's another line, as well as me thinking that it's the most famous and well-known line, I don't think there's another line that has as many named elites that still exist as that line. Yeah, it'd be hard you'd be hard-pressed to find one. There's probably four to six at least famous named cuts in Europe uh, that are NL5 haze. The Piff, the Heights haze, the Cuban Black haze, the Dog Shit, the Church, uh, all those are all NL5 haze phenos, and they all come from 88 to 95. Here's uh, another picture from Sensi. So um, it is, uh, it's probably the most it's probably the most famous line that anyone has ever made. And there's literally eight to 10 to 12 cuts of it that are all have different names. that are all elites uh, that are all still hoarded uh, and exist on both in Europe and in America. So I think it's by far the most famous cannabis hybrid ever made. Um, since you see this beautiful one. Yeah, that's super skunk. Since you see today is sadly probably bunk. Um, yeah, Neville worked for them. That's a whole story in itself. But Neville worked for them after he got busted and got out. They bailed him out of jail, and they gave him a great deal of if we bail you out of jail, you have to sell us your company. So uh, he spent like he, he spent a good chunk of time in jail, and they bailed him out. And Sensi Seeds ended up absorbing uh, the seed bank from Neville, and they hired Neville <clears throat> as their top breeder. So Neville went from owning the biggest, most successful seed company to having the DEA after him, spending about eight or nine months in jail, and then having to go from being an owner to being the head breeder for different people. And uh, that's another story, but they ended up renaming a bunch of his stuff. Um, and so Sensi, for the first five years in the 90s, for the most part, um, that was where Neville resided and made most of his beans. And probably from 95 to 2000, they still had the vast majority of the original uh, lines that they were working with. Uh, seed laws changed in 99 and 2000 in Holland, and most of the original breeders got raided and busted. Uh, yeah. Ben and Alan Dronkers are um, Dutch businessmen, for lack of a better term. They will never admit that they lost a single plant from the originals. You can't get a word out of them that anything is different than uh, it's ever been. Um, but most likely, <clears throat> they lost a bunch of stuff. And if I'm correct, I think they farmed out most of their work to Spain. 
they uh, haven't made traditional versions of their seeds. And, and the, the, the timeline I always go by is roughly 2005, 2006 is going to be the last time you want to buy stuff from the majority of the Dutch seed banks. Because by then, Nirvana, fucking all, all of them, Greenhouse, uh, Sensi, they were all farming out to Buddha seeds and eventually to Lamota. So basically, yeah, um, Sensi, sadly, Sensi had about a, a 10 to 15 year run of having a lot of legitimate stuff. I do think that there could be some things in Sensi that are still real. We, you have no idea what to know what. And we do know um, that they lost uh, quite a few mother plants and breeding plants over the years, but they'll never admit that. So sadly, Sensi is no longer <coughs> what they were in the 90s, which was an excellent place to get a bunch of beans. Um, and I will I say, uh, seeds. If, you, if if people want to see what original haze is like, Seedsman still has original haze that they sell. I believe uh, it's all it's all purchased from Watson, if I'm correct. But if you know people uh, talk about, you know, I might have a cutting of original haze and stuff. It, it's still around. It's still around in seed form. You know. So yeah, there's. I don't know. There's. We could talk endlessly. Um, uh, there's a couple things on here that are, that are easy to talk about. Somebody said, did Skunk Va head dog use your headband cut? Uh, yes and no. I have two headband cuts. Um, one of them we call the LA. He does not have that one. But there's another headband cut that's extremely nice uh, that both him and um, ICC uh, both have. And um, Mr. Bob Hemphill and some other people have. It's much more of a cush-based headband, and that's the headband that, that he uses. Uh, it's a great cut, super potent. That's the one that I use as well from Elite Cannabis. Yeah, and then um, uh, you mentioned the NL5 seed line was composed of Afghani, Colombian, and Mexican. What makes this different than Skunk One? Um, it, that's a good point. Skunk One is Afghani, Mexican, and Colombian. Just um, totally different types of parents, totally different lines. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's like saying somebody's Italian, Irish, and Chinese, you know, it's not the same parents. Uh, it's just the same region of origin. Um, certainly Sam Skunkman was not using the NL crews Afghans in his lines. Um, and it's very unlikely that the Mexican or the Colombians are related. Um, but it just goes to show how um, different lens, you know, from different parents can lead to very different things. Uh, yeah. Vastly different. Vastly different. You know, um, let's see. Somebody asked about, I don't know. I mean, I've been talking the whole time and Matt has been unusually quiet while I bullshit. So I, I, I learn. I still learn when we talk. There's certain things that you said tonight that I couldn't fucking remember. Um, even, even from being the one who talked to Greg a bunch, I still couldn't remember some of that stuff. So I'm just learning. Um, so let me, let me ask this. There was a guy that was talking about where can one find real old school strains and genetics? Why are all these pollen chuckers with watered down herm genetics and trash gear getting the most attention? <laughs> all right. So there's a couple comments on that. Uh, for one thing, um, and this is common, this isn't just for weed, but um, you know, some people are really good at marketing, right? Uh, for lack of a better term, you know, yeah. 
you know, there's a lot, a lot of breeders. Um, let's all throw it out there uh, again, right? So if we get CSI on here, in my opinion, CSI is one of the absolute best breeders that's alive today and working. Hands um, down. I think he, the amount of breeding he does, the amount that he shows his own work, the amount that he constantly cracks entire rooms of seed that he has made and shows people what's in the seed lines themselves, almost nobody does that. Yeah. Right? No, almost nobody shows as much of his own work in pictures and you can just watch him grow after grow after grow after grow after grow after grow on IG for years, just posting tons and tons of pics of, you know, most breeders don't test their own work at, at, at this particular time. It's very rare. Testing your own work is time consuming. The best way to make money as a breeder is to make the cross, give it a killer name, make some amazing pack packaging pump, 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 pump on IG and try to get a bunch of hype going. Um, and growing it out and testing it takes time, money, energy, space, power bills, you know, all this different stuff. And so, um, no, but the reason why I mentioned CSI is because he is absolutely terrible at promoting himself. He is a phenomenal breeder that doesn't really self-promote the way other people you know, and so you got to separate marketing from talent, right? The other thing I should say about that is that when people talk about herm genetics, people act like herms are a bad thing, right? And so, and they're not. You know, I said this on the live when Matt and I were chatting before. Anybody that thinks that herms are bad is tripping. Yeah. Right? Herms are inconvenient. In today's marketplace, um, obviously having seeds and stuff like that isn't the greatest. So, you know, uh, herms are just a genetic trait that enable a plant to create seed in the event that something weird happens and they don't get pollinated in order to continue the species, right? From a breeding perspective, um, they're quite convenient to the marijuana plant. Um, from a seedless perspective where we're trying to grow Cincinnati, or whatever, you know, however you want to call it, seedless, they're inconvenient. Um, but, a, but the marijuana plant did not develop with the idea that it was going to be seedless. To it, seedless is a failure. Yeah. Right? A straight failure. Okay? So, you know, it's trying to, just like all other life, it's trying to reproduce and survive. Right? And, you know, just to be clear, too, there is a lot of the best cannabis out there it's bag seed. Okay? Straight bag seed. It's really humbling as a breeder that some of the best <laughs> on the planet is accidents. It sure is. The chem dog came from a bag of weed bought at a dead show. Without seeds in that bag of weed, we don't have chem dog. Sour was a multi-term accident. Okay? The super skunk that everybody's hunting after and everybody wants and everybody's claiming to have RKS and there's RKS coming out of the woodwork and everybody wants to claim like they got skunk, skunk, skunk. That plant hermed like a mofo. It hermed like crazy. But because it hermed like crazy, if it didn't herm, there would be no sour diesel. There would be sour diesel is, is from accidental herms, right? The reason why people have Kush the reason why Kush came to LA is because in Florida, somebody's room hermed and they sold seeded weed and people found that seeded weed 
and they grew up some seed and they got what we know as Kush, sour diesel, cookies, okay, uh, chemdog, you name it, they're bag seeds. And so, you know, a lot of people like, you know, jump on herms and obviously you don't want to buy a bunch of gear that has tons of herms because it's inconvenient. But herms are a genetic trait like anything else and they exist. And breeders do the best they can to reduce the incidence of herms. But if you're breeding something, okay, nobody, you know, nobody cared that sour diesel hermed a little bit. It was fire wheat. Yeah. Right? Tasted great. Got you super fucking high. Lasted a long time. Burned great. It's a herm. You know, Kush came from a herm. Cookies came from a herm. Multiple herms. So a lot of the backbone of cannabis and a lot of the absolute most famous lines were not created intentionally at all. They were accidents that happened in people's rooms. And so that doesn't mean that like you want to get a bunch of hermy gear that sucks and makes your life crappy, right? Um, obviously, herms are inconvenient. And breeders can do the best they can to reduce her hermaphrodism traits but there's, I mean, Matt can speak to this. There's populations like Thai and other things where herms are like prevalent. Yeah, I mean, it, it really depends on which line you're running. And it, and it vastly depends on the room that the, the parents were acclimated in that made the seeds. If, if, you're, if you're popping seeds from a, a grower that only predominantly makes seeds indoors and you want to run them all outdoors, probably not the best idea. You know, it's, it's acclimation climate, all that goes into it. But intersex traits are here. People have bred against them for ever since people have been breeding cannabis for and vanilla, right? But they're still here. And they're, they're not going anywhere. It's a part of the, the genome. And, you know, man, there's, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of questions. I'll try to answer a couple more before we, sure. before we leave. The last question is Caleb using the other headband cut. Um, Caleb is CSI. Uh, and uh, CSI has both of my headband cuts. Uh, like I said, he's a real good friend of mine. I trust him with my whole library. He can have anything he wants from me, basically. Um, I love his breeding work. Uh, you know, nobody put the Mendo Perps, which I got lucky enough to crack. Nobody put more genetics out there of the Mendo Perps and made it a permanent part of the gene pool more than CSI. Um, so he has both of my headband cuts. Um, my LA cut, is a sort of a diesel type. Um, it's much more of a blend, you know. Uh, the other one is much more of a Kush varietal. They're both super potent. They're both in my kind of top five or ten cuts that I possess. Um, so he has both. He hasn't had them forever, but he has started using them in various work, and you can buy some of that work as we speak. Um, Mr. Nice, I'll ignore that one just because it's a super long subject. Um, but the, sh the short version is that after Neville left Sensi, he started working with Shanti Baba um, and they made, they bred together for a while. And, and the result of that breeding was Super Silver Haze, Mango Haze, Neville's Haze, some other things. And Neville was hurting for money and uh, he sold Shanti uh, for a good chunk of loot. A uh, quarter of a million dollars or something. Um, most of his seed collection from the seed bank era 
uh, in the eighties, uh, unreleased stuff, various lines and things like that. So Mr. Nice, um, like a lot of people, there's some people that believe that Shanti's full of shit. There's some people they believe he's a shady character, that he's a liar, but it's indisputable that Neville gave him a lot of real parents and Neville gave him, uh, or sold him his seed collection. Um, so there's not very many people that have indisputable evidence that they have a bunch of access to the old things. Um, and he's one of them. Uh, that being said, there's no way to verify, uh, what he has and what he doesn't have. And so there's a lot of debate on what he has and, uh, there's disagreement and some people think he's full of it. Some people think he's got all the white hot fire. The truth is probably somewhere in between. I'm sure he has some of Neville's old work. I'm sure he has a bunch of Neville's old seed. It's hard to say exactly um, what he currently has and what he doesn't, but his provenance and being able to access it, I don't think is in dispute. Would you agree with that, Matt? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, Neville, Neville, uh, I mean, at the very end, it's not talked about a lot, but um, he, he felt like Shanti Baba might owe him some more money even though it wasn't in the agreement because he had done so well with Neville's line. So Neville obviously felt that his lines were being used correctly and making tons of money with them. There's another thing about Australian bastard cannabis at CSI. I'll just say that real quick. I don't know that much sure. about it. Um, you know, CSI is a true breeder. Um, he's really interested in freaks. He's really interested in genetic uh, oddities. And if nothing else, ABC is extremely odd uh, in the way that its leaves form and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of stuff right now is really bottlenecked. People use the same 30, 40, 50 cuts over and over and over again. And so at the very least, when you buy ABC work, you're getting something that is genetically unique so far. And he's certainly widening the gene pool of available cannabis. Yeah. By making it by making it available to the public, um, it is probably one of the first lines in a long time that's totally unique from what came before, uh, and it's valuable just for that. Uh, and it's an ongoing project that he's putting a bunch of time into, and I'm sure over the next three or four or five years we'll see a bunch more work from it. Uh, Matt can comment on this too, but he's really just been getting started with his own work on it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I see so many people get so mad every time he posts pictures of it. people actually genuinely get hurt feelings when they see this plant. They're like, Oh my God, what is that piece of shit? You know, it, it's, it's surprising to me because a lot of them claim to be breeders or, or, or are seed makers and have companies, but they don't see the genetic novelty in bringing in something completely new that hasn't really touched cannabis, you know, as far as modern lines. There's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of sameness. I'll say this quickly too. The way the breeding has gone the last 20 years, as soon as something becomes famous, everybody crosses it to everything else. Yep. So the amount of shit right now that has cookie in it, cush in it, sour diesel in it, Skittles in it, um, you know, you name it in it, um, stuff gets bred and bred and bred and bred and bred and bred to death. Um, so to take, say, cookies and to cross it with uh, ABC is crossing it to a vastly different gene pool than anybody else is using. And so who knows what might come of that? That's who the knows? best part. You don't know. Who knows in a few years where that might lead. That might lead to unique highs. That might open up the gene pool 
and make things pop out you're not expecting. Genetics yeah. are fun. And so people get on him about it because it's so weird. Um, but he's really just in the infancy of playing around with it. But you've seen that he is, um, you know, he's been posting a bunch of pictures this last week of some of his work with the ABC. You know, I don't know. You guys could like, this is probably odd because I've been talking 98% of the time for an hour and a half. <laughs> it's all good. I can hear it in my throat. Um, but we kind of wanted to just do this thing and maybe we'll do it like, you know, semi-often or whatever. Uh, we had this thought of kind of going through the seed banks and it's such a big subject. Um, we really only touched on a little bit of the history. We didn't really touch on Hayes or Skunk or Durbin or um, anything from Jim Ortega very much, but those can be for future things. I hope everybody enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I don't want to make it a forever thing, um, but we could do this pretty often. And there's also the Patreon. You can go to Breeder Syndicate Patreon, where me and Natsu always shoot the shit with a bunch of people that are uh, a part of it. And you can ask questions all the time. And whenever we have time, we go in there and pick at them and, and, and try to break it down. That's really true, too. Um, the uh, it's, it's on Discord, uh, and uh, we have a we have a server there. Um, you know, and yeah, you can you can directly message me on there. I generally answer. Sometimes it takes me a minute because you know I do do things and get busy or whatever but matt and i are both pretty active on there and we do bullshit a bunch and it's a lot easier to ask away and get responses on there so feel free to join that um and really what all matt and i are trying to do at this point is just get chunks of history and chunks of knowledge out there to the larger public uh this is kind of our weed life this is what we like to do is what we like to talk about you know and on or whatever so i hope everybody enjoyed it uh and learned a couple things and i hope it continues and all that so uh yeah i think that's it <laughs>